0: We're on the home stretch of the Tough Topics series. According to my preaching schedule, I intend to do this series through this month, through the end of June, and then call it a wrap. That will not enable me to get to every single question. I got more questions than I could address, but that's the best I can do. The uh, the topic for this morning, actually, a couple of different people have asked me to preach on this specific topic, and so it's the doctrine of election the doctrine of election. That's what we're focusing on this morning. Uh, Also, you might remember, this is going back a couple months, but a very thoughtful and articulate young man named Wes, who is he out with the kids this morning? Okay, so Wes Underschultz, who's here, but not here here. He's out serving with the kids. He wrote me a letter. It relates to this topic. I read the letter a couple months ago. I'll read it again. This morning, But it ties into the doctrine of election, God's sovereignty, our free will, how those fit together. So we'll try to cover all of those things this morning. Uh, we have a short text that will be our gateway into this topic. It's from 2 Timothy. As you know, 2 Timothy is the last letter that we have from Paul. He may have written more, but we don't have them. This is the last one that we have that he wrote. It was 2 Timothy. Contains final words of instruction for Timothy. I always think of, I always when I think of 2 Timothy, I think of Paul the athlete running the race and having the baton and running faithfully, but getting to the point where it's time to pass that baton on to the next one, and it's Timothy. And so 2 Timothy to me is like the baton pass, where Paul is saying, okay, Timothy, here's some final words of instruction before you go. And in this book, we get an indicator of Paul's commitment to an understanding of the doctrine of election. So I'll read it. It's 2 Timothy 2 and chapter 2. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 964. But before I do, let me pray. Holy Father, thank you for gathering us again this morning. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that your steadfast love never ceases, and that your mercies never come to an end, but that they are new every morning. And I pray that newness, that freshness of your mercies, that we would feel that again this morning, not in a stale or old or familiar way, but in a new way and in a fresh way. I pray specifically for this doctrine some of, some of us have grown up hearing about and knowing and believing in this doctrine, others, um, find it hard to believe and struggle with it and others don't even, haven't even thought about it. Uh, we're all at different pra- places, Lord, but I pray that you would help us to think rightly, to think biblically uh, about uh, your teaching on this issue and help us to be shaped by it, changed by it, to apply it to our lives, not just know things that are true, but to live them out. In Christ's name, amen. All right, 2 Timothy 2, and I'm starting in verse 8, and it says this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The word of the Lord. So the doctrine of election is one of the... It's, it, it, you, it's kind of one of the signature doctrines of Reformed theology. In the, in the CRC, we subscribe to what is referred to as the three forms of unity... The three forms of unity refers to three historic, reformed, theological statements. And doctrinally, these forms of unity unite all the churches within the CRC. We collectively uh, subscribe to these articulations of the faith. Uh, They are the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, and the Canons of Dort. And each of those Theological statements contains an affirmation of the doctrine of election. That's what I mean when I say election is one of the signature doctrines of the Reformed faith. So, for example, the Belgic Confession says it like this. Here's what the Belgic Confession has to say about the doctrine of election. It's Article 16, it's entitled The Doctrine of Election, and it says this, We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of Adam, God showed himself to be as he is, both merciful and just. God is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those who, in the eternal and unchangeable divine counsel, have been elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by His pure goodness without any consideration of their works. And God is just in leaving the others, in other words, the non-elect, in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. And so in that particular articulation of the doctrine of election, the author, who, a guy named Guido de Bray, if you care, wrote that, um, emphasized that in election God is being merciful, he's extending grace that we don't deserve, he's saving sinners that don't deserve it, so it's a merciful doctrine, but also God is being just In in the ones that he does not elect, there's justice there uh, that that deals with this issue of culpability or responsibility for our own sins, for our own rebellion. And so in election, God is being both merciful and just. Uh, The canons of Dort are actually all about the doctrine of election. The canons of Dort, as you probably know from from a catechism class or from wherever, That they were written in response to a theologian named Jacob Arminius. And uh, Arminius was a theologian who had written against the doctrine of election. And the canons of Dort were a reformed biblical response to that teaching. it's It's a biblical defense of the doctrine of election. And so Dort says it like this. In Article 7, it's entitled, Election, and it says, Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. God did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen, and the foundation of, those, uh, of their salvation. So again, we see in in this articulation of election, God chose before the foundation of the world a particular group of people to be his chosen, to be his elect. He chose them not because of anything inherent to themselves, not because of what they had done or because of what they would do or because they're so great or so gifted or anything like that. He chose that particular group of people simply according to his own free grace, his free gift of grace to make them his elect chosen people. That's the doctrine of election. Our confessions clearly endorse the doctrine of election. Uh, But where do we find the doctrine of election in the Bible? Well, the answer to that question is that it's all over. It's all over the Bible. In our passage this morning, Paul clearly uses the term He says that he endures everything for the sake of the elect. In Paul's mind, that's a category of people in the world, the elect. That simple statement assumes that the doctrine of election is true and that God has elected a particular group of people unto salvation. So I want to consider two questions that this passage raises and see if we can think biblically about these questions. First, it's really hard to talk about election without talking about fairness. I bet that that word has already popped into your mind, fairness. So let's ask the question. Let's just be honest and ask it. Is it fair that God would elect some and not others? Aren't you wondering that? Second, if those people are already elect, right, which means God chose them before the foundation of the world to be his people, if they are already elect, then what does it matter what we do? Why, why is Paul enduring all things for the sake of the elect? What? Won't they be saved anyways? Aren't they elect? So why, why is Paul enduring everything for them? Why doesn't Paul just relax and enjoy life and let the elect be the elect and let God take care of it? That second question gets at the question of how God's sovereignty fits in with our free will. And it also relates to the, context of, the content of Wes's letter, which is why... If I have it with me, I hope I do, which is why I'll read it. We'll get to that in a minute. In answer to the first question, right, What is it fair? Uh, I, I think that's a totally legitimate question, but I do, as we enter into this question, I want to remind us that we ought to tread lightly when questioning the fairness of God, since He is in fact the potter and we are the clay. And it's fine to ask the question, but I want to ask it with a posture of humility. And when I ask it, I want to recognize that God is under no obligation to conform His ways to our preferences. Nor does God owe us an explanation for why He does what He does. He's God, we're not. So perhaps the first thing to remember is that the doctrine of election is plainly taught throughout the Bible, whether we like it or not, it is. Even in the Old Testament, the principle of the doctrine of election is there, right? In the Old Testament, God elects Israel to be his chosen people. Not Assyria, not Egypt, not the Philistines, but Israel. Why? Was that fair? Well, he did it. (laughs) He did it. And he doesn't need our permission to do that. He just did it. He's God and we're not. He elected Israel to be his chosen people. Did they choose him because they were inherently better or nicer or morally superior? No, right? God says that explicitly to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, do you want to know why I love you? In Deuteronomy, he says, I love you because I love you. (laughs) Full stop, that's why I love you. Not because of you, because of me, because I chose to love you. I love you because I love you. I do not love you because you've earned it, I do not love you because you're better than all the other nations. I have simply chosen to make you my treasured possession. That's a word God uses all throughout the Old Testament about Israel. They are his treasured possession. Why? Because he chose to make them so. That's why. God elected Israel to be his people and to use Israel as the means through which he would send his son to secure the salvation of all of His elect people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the doctrine of election is taught in the Old Testament through the way that God elected and dealt with Israel, but it's even more powerfully and explicitly taught in the New Testament. The book of Revelation, chapter 13 and verse eight, to me is one of the strongest verses indicating this doctrine. It, ta- it refers to a book, an actual book, it's called, The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. That's the title of the book. The Book of Life of the Lamb Who Was Slain. We get a little glance at that book in Revelation 13, and what we find out is that that big book contains the names of all of those who have eternal life. It's, it's a book of, it's a list. It's a big, long list of names of the elect, and what we're told in Revelation 13 is that book, or the names of the elect, was written before the foundation of the world. Right? It's not a work in progress. It's not a work where he's adding names as he goes. It was written before the foundation of the world, which seems to indicate that God had determined who the elect would be before he even created the first human. Acts 13, we hear a a sermon from Paul, it's a stirring sermon, he preached it to a crowd of Gentiles, and then after that, we read that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's who believed after they heard Paul's sermon, as many as were appointed unto eternal life. A statement that confirms the idea that God has elected some to eternal life. There are lots of other places I could go, but I'm going to go to what I think is, is, is the most explicit, most clear teaching of the doctrine of election in the New Testament. Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, Even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I don't know how to make sense of those words, except to say that God has elected some, predestined some, for salvation. I mean, that's explicitly and clearly what it says. And when we read a passage like that, or any passage that teaches election, it simply will not make sense to us unless we have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of sin. They go together. Because not only does the Bible teach election, but the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. All of us. And that all of us have willfully chosen to rebel against God. All of us. The doctrine of election doesn't really make sense unless you believe that. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and that the right penalty, justice, is separation from God as a result of our sin, which all of us deserve. We know that's true from the Bible, that's what the Bible says, but we also know that's true from our own experience, right? We know that we have chosen to sin against God. We know that there is no way that we would have chosen freely to repent repent of our sin and, and turn to God and put our faith in Christ unless God himself changed our hearts. We wouldn't have made that decision on our own, and we intuitively know that. So here's the wrong image to get in your mind when you think about election. Some people picture, this is, what, this is how election works, right? That, that, that there are people from all over the world, good people, who are trying to approach God, coming to his throne, wanting to worship him, pleading for him to accept them, but God is standing there, arms crossed, and saying, nope, too bad. You're not elect, so you cannot come. You're not a so you cannot worship me. Listen, that, that is a perversion of what the Bible teaches about humanity. Here's the right picture. All of humanity, all of us, charging headlong, top speed, toward the edge of a cliff. In flat-out rebellion against God, making every effort to get away from God. That's the image that the Bible gives of humanity, apart from grace. And God, in His kindness... Purely out of grace, and at great cost to himself and to his son, has mercy and reaches out and grabs some of us, and stops us from jumping off that cliff, and turns our hearts towards him. That's election. It, I, I always think of the verse from, from the hymn, "What wondrous Love is this," where it says, "What wondrous love is this? though I raised my clenched fist. He opened up my hand to receive his gift. That's election. I raised my fist to God. I said, I want nothing to do with your authority and with your glory. And instead of saying, fine, then go your own way, he grabbed my hand, opened it up, so that I might receive his gift of salvation. That's election. Pure grace. The thing that's unfair about election It is unfair, it is unjust. What's unfair is that anyone gets elected. Not that some people don't, that's justice. Justice would be let everyone plunge off the cliff. It's pure grace that anyone is elect and saved. And that brings us to our second question. If some people are elected to salvation before the ages began, then why is Paul enduring all things for them? God's gonna save them one way or another, so why doesn't Paul just Relax, let go, let God. The answer to that question is surprisingly simple. God uses means to accomplish His sovereign purposes. That is the way that evangelism, and pretty much everything else, works in this world. God decrees something to happen. His sovereign will will be done. There's no question about that, right? He's in charge. He's sovereign. His will will be done. But in order to achieve his will, he uses means. He uses people. He uses events to bring his will about. And I think we all intuitively understand this as well. We all know that how, how it's possible that God could be sovereign, but yet... Y- use means to bring about his sovereign will, right? Those are not two contradictory things. When we pray before a meal, nobody prays, Lord, I'm so thankful that I worked so hard that I made this money so that I could buy this food with my own money. Amen. Right? Not, no one ever prayed that prayer. We thank God for providing the food. We thank God because we know that he's the one that gave us the job. We know that he's the one that gave us a healthy body and a sound mind so that we can work hard at the job. So ultimately, even though we were the means through which he provided for us, we don't thank ourselves. We thank God. Because ultimately, the gifts come from him. We know that God uses means, and yet we still recognize that it's the Lord providing for us, not ourselves. Same with our salvation. Nobody, Nobody ever prayed, Lord, I'm so thankful that I chose you. I'm so thankful that I decided to put my faith in you. Lord, I'm really impressed with myself for making such a good decision. All of us who have experienced God's grace instinctively recognize that it is the Lord who saved us by the sending of his Son. It is the Lord who softened our hearts and enabled us to see our need for a Savior. And yes, we thank God for the specific person who shared the gospel with us, But when we do that, what we're saying is, Lord, thank you for using a person as the human instrument of my salvation. And that's where Paul's sense of urgency comes from. That's why Paul endures all things for the sake of the elect, because he is aware that he is an instrument in the hands of God, functioning as the human means by which God brings salvation to people who desperately need it. And... God wants to use you that way, too. Think about the incredible honor of being used by God in that way, being the means, the human mechanism by which God, in his sovereignty, is telling the world about his plan of salvation. No wonder Paul is so intent on fulfilling his duty as a herald, a messenger, a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at the same time, on the one hand, we acknowledge that hard work needs to be done on our part. Endure all things implies hard work. But we also at the same time understand that God is sovereign in evangelism and that frees us from feeling the pressure that everything depends on us, which is a load that we were never meant to bear. God never intended us to bear the load of thinking that other people's salvation depends on us saying the right thing at the right time. Right? You ever felt that way? And then, and then, whatever the interaction doesn't go like you hope it would, and then you feel like a failure, and then you think to yourself, "Oh, I blew it, and I never should have sh- should have said it that way, or I should have said something differently, and now I missed my opportunity, and now I'll never get another chance." And Jesus must really be disappointed in me right now. Well, Second 2 Timothy two ten is a corrective to that kind of self-condemning thinking. God is sovereign. Even in evangelism, God is sovereign. He's not up there hoping that you say the right thing the right way so that the elect can get saved. He is calling people unto himself, and amazingly, he is choosing to use us, his people, as the human means by which he gets that done. And that is why we endure everything for the sake of the elect. But at the same time, we don't feel the burden that their salvation rests on our shoulders, because it doesn't. We exercise our free will in order to engage in evangelism, but our free will exists under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And we know that His will will be done. That is not a question. The question is whether or not we will freely choose to participate in that. And that brings us to Wes's letter. So let me read for you again. What West wrote to me. Here's what he wrote What happens to people who never hear about Jesus and live in a country that only knows of a false God? They might have grown up in a place where they are taught about and told to respect their false God the same way that I'm taught about and told to respect the one true God. Do those people go to heaven? Also, how do we know that our God is real? I believe that he is, but how do we know that Christianity isn't just another religion? I don't need proof, but we Christians don't have any. I believe that prayers get answered, but what if it's a coincidence? Will I go to heaven now? I think I'm testing God. You can read this up front if you want. Actually, I think I would like that. Thank you, Wes. No, thank you, Wes. That is a wonderful, courageous, articulate, thoughtful letter. It's an honor that you would share that with me and that you would allow me to share it with us. This is the first half of the letter that relates to our topic this morning, but I'm just going to say a couple of things, a couple of, I just want to address a couple of things that he raises in the second half first of all i just want to say that your questions Wes, they honor god they honor god having questions or doubts or fears does not mean that you're testing god it does not it does definitely does not mean that you're not going to heaven of course we have questions of course we do Here's the thing, we're always gonna have questions. You're always gonna have questions, Wes, as wise as you become, and you're already wise. You're gonna continue to grow in wisdom and maturity your whole life. You're gonna continue to know God better and better your whole life. You're gonna continue to love God more and more your whole life. You're gonna continue to live that out your whole life. And you're always gonna have questions, always. Even in heaven, We will not know everything there is to know about God. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. We're not. He's bigger than us. He will always be bigger than us. And we will never get to the bottom of his majesty and glory and grace. We just won't. Questions are okay. Life is complicated, faith is complicated, and we have questions. Our God is a big God, and our big God Can handle our questions. So, Wes and everybody, keep asking your questions and do not for one moment think that God will reject you just because you have questions. In fact, I think one of the worst things that we can do for our faith is to pretend that we have everything figured out and to pretend that we don't have any questions when actually we do. And in fact, that's one of the reasons we're doing this series to be reminded that questions are healthy and good and God-honoring. Second, you, the, the question about whether or not there are proofs for the truth of Christianity and how proof and evidence relate to our faith, those are wonderful questions to ask. Those questions relate to what theologians call the field of apologetics. Apologetics is the discipline of providing a, a defense of the Christian faith. Uh, that would be a good topic for a different for a different sermon, but the first issue that Wes raised is directly related to the topic of election, God's sovereignty, and our free will. What about those people being raised in homes and being raised in countries where Christ is not honored and the gospel is not proclaimed? I don't, I don't, I don't know any thoughtful Christians who haven't, at some point in their journey, wondered about that. I don't. I don't know any. In order to make sense of that very good question, we need to remember some of the ground that we've covered this morning. It's important. It's foundational. We need to keep in mind, if we're going to answer this question biblically, we need to keep in mind that according to the Bible, all humans have sinned and have willfully rejected God. That is what the Bible teaches. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and apart from God's grace, all of us are actively running away from God. Okay, that being the case, there's no one who ends up in hell who doesn't want to be there. I know that's a weird way to talk. It's maybe a weird way, a new way to think about it. But, it, but C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, for those who have rebelled against God, And for those who have willfully rejected his authority, for those people being in heaven, being in the presence of the glory of God and surrounded by people who are proclaiming that glory and worshiping him and loving one another, that would be hell for anyone who didn't acknowledge and celebrate God's glory. It would be awful. In other words, hell is a self-chosen Exile from God. It is a choice that people make to run from God's grace. And yet the Bible also tells us that God has elected some people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all over the world, Jew and Gentile alike, to become part of his family and to receive the gift of eternal life. That's why missionaries go to those places and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that just like it says in Acts, as many as are appointed unto eternal life will believe that message. Now I am an optimist, and I tend to think that the number of the elect is a big number. At one place in the Bible, in the prophet Isaiah, it says that that number is more than the grains of sand on the shores of the oceans. It says that that number is bigger than the stars in the sky. Those are big numbers. I know, I get it, that's a word picture. I get it, that's not t- intended to be understood literally as an, as an actual number. But those metaphors do, do seem to indicate that it's a big number. We know that God can use any means he wants to bring his into his family. He doesn't have to use missionaries to get the message of Jesus to his people. And sometimes... And I bet you've heard stories like this. God bypasses normal means and sends dreams or or visions to convict people of sin and to bring them to Christ. But usually, he uses humans, missionaries, who go and who proclaim the message, like Paul. That brings us back to our text. That's why Paul is making every effort for the sake of the elect. He believes in the doctrine of election. He believes that humans are lost without Christ. And so he talks about Jesus, wherever he goes, believing that those who are elect will hear that message and will believe it and will receive it by faith. So what about those who haven't heard, who haven't ever heard that message? Well, if they're among the elect, they will hear no one ends up in hell because of a clerical error. No one ends up in hell with God scratching his head and saying, well, if, if, if only they would have heard the message, they would have believed it, but they just didn't get a chance to hear. That doesn't happen. God doesn't make mistakes. And nobody gets overlooked in God's plan of salvation. Now, just, just for the sake of being as practical as possible, let me share with you four questions that I've found helpful when I'm having conversations with people about the gospel looking for an opportunity to to proclaim the gospel i'm 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 a shy and quiet and introverted person most of you know that and it's not easy to have conversations with people about god and about jesus i get that i feel that i have found these four questions kind of help to to give a pathway for a for an evangelistic conversation the first i i usually Usually what I do is, if, I, if I'm talking to someone, I just say, Would you, do, you, do you mind if I ask you four questions about God? Just get it on the table. Um, if, if most people I find are happy, what's more important than that? Most people have opinions about God. Most people want to talk about God. Most people are happy for me to ask four questions about God. Some are not. Some say, nope, I'm out. Which is fine. Then I, then I don't. Then, then we move on to a different topic. But if they say, yes well then here we go You imagine we're having this conversation I'm me, you're you you just told me I could ask you four questions about God really? ready? question number one do you believe in God? not everyone does right? there's atheists in the world there's atheists out there not everyone does most people do take, take your own poll and ask everybody around you most people do most people do believe in God you answer for yourself do you believe in God? alright question number two do you believe in heaven? Do you know what? Most people do. <laughs> Ask, most people do. No matter what their religious convictions are, no matter what faith they're part of, or or, or no faith, or whatever, most people believe in heaven. He put eternity in our hearts. We feel it. We believe it. Okay. Question number three. This is this is the actual important question. How do you think someone gets to go to heaven? Go ahead, answer for yourself. Think in your own mind. What would you say? How does someone get to go to heaven? What I've found, I've had this conversation many, many times with people. What I've found is it's truly amazing how consistent almost everyone's answer is. It basically takes, in one way or another, it's a form of this. You do more good things than bad things. You, you be a good person. You don't do anything super bad, like kill someone. You generally conduct yourself in a, in a good way, and you go to heaven. By far, the majority of people that you talk to will give some form of that answer. If you don't believe me, have that conversation this afternoon with someone. Basically, they'll say you go to heaven by being a good person. Now... Everyone is, of course, entitled to their own opinion, but if that's your view, you should at least know that that's not what the Bible teaches. You're entitled to believe that, but that is not what the Bible teaches. Or if your answer is slightly different than that, if your answer is, well, everyone goes to heaven, well, I admire your optimism, but again, that view is not what the Bible teaches. And that's where question four comes in. We've covered three questions, you've told me what you think. Question four is this, do you wanna know what I think? (laughs) It's a setup. (laughs) Because most people, after you've sat and listened to what they think, are not gonna say no. (laughs) So, when I say, do you wanna know what I think, and they say yes, what they've just asked me to do is tell them the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I give it to them, a two minute rundown. I talk about the fact that God is both good and holy and that he made humanity in his image and he made us to be in a relationship with him. We're made to worship him. We're made to love him. And we blew it because we sinned and we broke the rules and we broke his law. And because of that, we don't get to be in a healthy relationship with him because he's so holy. And our sin separates us from Him. It breaks the relationship, as sin does. Sin is the ultimate relationship breaker. That's true between humans. It's true between us as God as well. But God so loved the world that it wasn't acceptable to Him to have a broken relationship with His creation, with humanity. And so He did something about that by sending His only begotten Son to come to earth on a rescue mission, to live a perfect life, to do what we could not do, which is obey the law and live a life of love and obedience. And then he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross so that we might be forgiven. Because once our sins are forgiven, we can be back into that healthy, life-giving relationship with God the Father. That's what I believe about how someone gets to go to heaven. It's a free gift, and it's received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the message that Paul was making every effort to, com- to proclaim. That's the message that all of the elect, throughout all history, from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all the elect believe that message. And they have received it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is my understanding of how election and sovereignty, God's sovereignty over election, and our free will under God's sovereignty all fit together. Let's pray. Holy Father, deep waters this morning, we recognize that. But that's okay. Okay. You gave us minds to think. You gave us scriptures to study. You told us true what what is true. You exhorted us to reason these things through. And that's what we're trying to do. I thank you for the comfort and peace that comes from knowing that you have in your mercy and sovereignty reached out and grabbed hold of us. Made us your people elected us to be part of your holy family. So comforting to know that you're the initiator here, that you're the covenant maker and covenant keeper, and that you're holding us fast. And it's also exhilarating to know that you've got more elect out there, more people that you have called by name to be part of your family, and that you have charged us to go out and to be proclaimers of the message of the gospel, that those elect might be brought into the fold. It's thrilling to think that you might use us as a means by which you accomplish your will and purpose for the world and for your people. And so I pray that we'd be ready and available and always, with words on our lips, ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.